Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, would love to get the chance to meet you. Hey, we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip there. If you don't have a Bible, you can steal one from us. They're on the back tables um, over there. There's purple ones. There's black ones. Um, that's our gift to you. Please steal one. Um, otherwise, we'll have scripture up on the screen. Um, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Y'all ready for this? Yeah, okay, cool. Front row is pretty hype over here. I love it. <laughs> um, hey, while you're flipping there, um, let's kick this off. The, uh, the greatest commandment for followers of Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 37 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's Jesus speaking. Um, and then a couple verses later in verse 39, he says, and also, second part, part two of that, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you can basically summarize that. The command to follow Jesus looks like to love God and love people. That is central. That's at the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Love God and love people. Here's, uh, here's what I want us to wonder, though, and ponder on today. Why is it that the loving people part is so dang difficult? Why is it so hard to love people? Here's an observation I've made. I have found, personally, that I tend to operate out of the belief that if I get what I want, when I want it, how I want it, then I'll be happy. And if I don't get what I want, then I won't be happy. Um, here's, here's some ways to illustrate that. Um, Chick-fil-A. Everyone loves Chick-fil-A, yes? I love Chick-fil-A a lot. I eat it way too many times a week. Um, Taylor Hadwiger over there can attest to how many times I DoorDash Chick-fil-A to our meetings. It's like an egregious amount. Um, Friday, I'm at my, my home, and it gets around lunchtime, and I'm like, gosh, I'm hungry. Don't have any food in the fridge. What should I eat? Chick-fil-A for the fourth time this week. Um, and I get the same thing, little spicy chicken sandwich with bacon on it, uh, chicken strips, uh, Arnold Palmer, Sunjoy, whatever they decide to call it. Um, and that's what I get. And I look forward to it. Chick-fil-A sauce is like cocaine to me. I think I'm addicted. Um, it's so good. Now, I, I always order it. I typically DoorDash it here, and it comes from the same place, and they give me the same order, and it's awesome. Makes me happy. Makes me really content. Gives me the warm fuzzies. Friday, I order Chick-fil-A. It's coming from a different location. Um, I already know things are going downhill when I get a no notification on my phone. A, DoorDash 2 is just so expensive. That's a side tangent, but like worth it for Chick-fil-A. Anyways, I get a notification from DoorDash. It says your order is going to be like 10 or 15 minutes late. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, it's coming at 1230 and not 12.15, whatever. Um, and I start getting a little discontent. Then it finally gets to my door, and I'm like, okay, Chick-fil-A. And I grab it, and I look in the bag, and none of my sauces are in there. And instead of the drink that I wanted, they gave me a sweet tea. Like, I love sweet tea, I guess, but like, that's not what I wanted. Um, they got the uh, chicken strip order wrong, and I was like, Chick-fil-A, what are you doing? Like, 
I thought you were supposed to be the best. Like, isn't it your pleasure? Like, was it your pleasure to screw up my order? Like, what's going on? Um, and I just found myself getting really upset and really frustrated. Um, I do the same thing whenever my wife and I want go to the grocery store. If I go to the grocery store, I'm getting Jif Natural Creamy Peanut Butter. If she goes, she gets almond butter. I don't like almond butter. And so we'll get into little bickers and, and like fights and quarrels talking about what should be in our pantry. Um, and I remember one time I like actually tasted the almond butter and I was like, dang, that's actually like really good. Um, but we'll get into these like little arguments, not like real fights. Well, yeah, not like real fights, but uh, about whether or not there should be peanut butter or almond butter in our pantry. So those are just a couple things to illustrate it, but we see it in so many other things too, right? That we tend to operate out of the belief that if we get what we want, the peanut butter, the sun joy, whatever, then we'll be happy. If we don't get it, then we won't be happy and we'll be discontent. And you see it play out in so many other things. Think of your relationship status for a second. Do you have the girl? Do you have the guy? And if you do, how do you feel? If you don't, how do you feel? Or there's other things. Did you get into that fraternity? Did you get into that sorority? Did you get that internship or get into that program? Did we get into that grad school or get that paycheck that we thought we earned and deserved or at least feel somewhat entitled to? When we do get those things, shoot, man, we feel like we're on top of the world. We're standing 10 feet tall. We start saying things like, I made it happen for myself, right? But then when we don't get those things, man, our world crumbles. We fall apart. We start to believe that we're suffering. We start asking questions like, why me? Why don't I have these things? Here's what typically tends to happen when we find ourselves in that place. We get frustrated. They didn't give me my son joy. We begin to blame others, freaking Chick-fil-A employees. We grow bitter. They should know better. And a spirit of resentment replaces a spirit of gladness. And it affects our relationships. And sometimes the result is something as fickle as arguing about whether or not there should be peanut butter or almond butter in your pantry. But sometimes it goes much deeper. It's much heavier, much more personal. And it results in fractured, broken relationships with the people that we love and who are supposed to love us. And that's what James is addressing in our passage today. Um, look at verse 1. He asks a question, and then he immediately provides an answer um, in the form of another question. But verse 1, the first part, he says, or asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Or, in other words, where's all this conflict coming from? Where, what's causing all this trouble? What's the source of all this relational discord, this disunity that you're experiencing, all these fights and quarrels? What's the source of it? What's causing it? And then he answers it in the second part of that verse. He says, is it not this? Is it not that your passions, or your translation might say pleasures, is it not that those things are at war within you? And that's what I want us to look at today. What is that war within us between our, uh, of our passions or our pleasures? What is that war, and then what can we do about it? So that's, that's where we're going today. Let's keep on reading uh, in verse, verse 2. James says, you desire, and you do not have, so, naturally, you murder. Not natural at all. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and when you ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, or 
your pleasures. Now, real quick, where we left off in the book of James. Last week was Easter. We got to preach on the resurrection. It was awesome. Before that, we closed out chapter 3. And what we saw in chapter 3 was all of these things happening internally. This idea of internal discord, right? We want peace and we don't have it. It was personal. It was all things going on on the inside. Then chapter 4 opens up with the external. We see external discord. We see interpersonal discord and disunity marked by quarreling, marked by, by fighting. We see unfilled desire that leads to murder. Coveting leads to arguing and fighting. Now, you're probably thinking here, like, I would never murder a Chick-fil-A employee because they didn't give me fries, right? Like, that, that wouldn't ever happen. Um, and there's a little bit of debate on whether, so he's talking to a, a church, a group of believers, and there's a little bit of debate of, like, man, were they actually so ticked off to each other that they actually went and killed one another? Some people think that, and there is like a little bit of evidence for that. But regardless, if you're like, I don't think I would ever do that, um, here's what Jesus has to say about, about that. In Matthew, um, he says, if you look on someone with anger or hateful intent, then you're committing murder on that person in your heart. And that should be a very sobering reality for all of us. Um, and here's what that is highlighting. Here's what these verses are highlighting. Conflict, relational discord, disunity, arguing with one another, fighting each other, all of it is just a symptom. All of that external stuff is just an, a, a symptom of something internal. All of it is just a symptom of seeking to gratify one's own passions and one's own pleasure. It's all a symptom of this war within. So let's, let's talk about this war. Um, I'm going to throw some stuff up on the board for you note takers in here. I hope it's helpful. Um, but you've got a war going on between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. Now, before we, we go on any further to unpack this passage, we've got to do something super important, I think. I want to make a couple things crystal clear. We've got to talk about the theology, is what I've been calling it, the theology of desire, the theology of passions, desire, and pleasure. Here's why I think that's important. Not all desire is bad desire. Having passion about something is not an evil thing. You absolutely should be passionate about uh, things. It's a really, actually really good thing. Us here in this room, I would say, this generation of people are very passionate people. Would you agree? We care a lot about certain things. We are very passionate. Um, that is a God-given character trait that I fully believe resembles and reflects the character of Jesus. Desire and passion are kind of like the engines of our life, right? They drive us, and they should drive us in so many ways. And there's nothing wrong with seeking pleasure or enjoying something. God has given us good desires. And he quite literally created us in the beginning to enjoy life with him, to enjoy his creation, to enjoy relationship with one another. That's what he did. He said, take pleasure in all of this that I've created for you. It's not a bad thing. But here's what happened. We chose to rebel against God. Uh, we chose to call our own shots. Sin entered the picture, and it fractured our relationship with him, with the God who created us, and it fractured and tainted our desire, desires. Our once good and beautiful and wholesome desires are now tainted and disordered. And so we have to be careful when we're looking at desire, right? We have to be careful when we're looking at desires and passions because some of them are good, and you should lean into them. Hear me say that. But some of them we need to learn to say no to. And I understand that that's tricky, takes a little bit of discernment, because of two reasons that I see. I think on one, one hand, you see the world, which has a history of idolizing and worshiping desire. Follow your desire, follow your heart, right? Of idolizing, worshiping, that that's the authoritative voice. And then on the other hand, 
you have the church. And the church has an unfortunate history of demonizing and suppressing desire. Oh, you shouldn't feel that desire. That's bad, right? And so I can get that it's tricky. I can get that you're like, okay, wait, some desire is good. Some desire I should die to. Like what, how do I, I work through that? But I would argue regardless, um, here's something that I want you to take note of. I would argue that our desires, both good and bad, are where the rubber meets the road in our life with God. It's where we truly get to experience life with him, where we get to deny the desires that don't bring him glory, and we get to grow in looking more and more like Jesus himself, who, in obedience, denied himself and his desires to the point of dying on a cross. And we get to ask God to give us new desires, or at least simply to reorient them or to reorder them, restore them, um, and then enjoy them, like one of the Psalms says, and drink from a river of delights and feast on God's abundance. It's meant to be enjoyed. Here's, um, I think, one desire that I think kind of illustrates this line pretty well. Think of the desire for sexual intimacy. Um, we all know what that desire feels like on some level, right? Sex isn't a bad thing, that, and that's something that gets idolized and worshipped in the world, and something that has had a history of being demonized and suppressed in the church. Sex is a good thing. It is meant to be enjoyed, but you don't need me to tell you how twisted, how perverted that desire can become, or the types of wounds and the type of harm it can inflict on yourself and on other people. Right? Good desire, tainted and perverted and twisted. Sex isn't inherently bad. Uh, it is meant to be enjoyed, right? Meant to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within the boundaries of a covenant marriage, right? Um, and if you don't believe that and you're like, I feel like the church preaches everything but that, there is a literal whole book in the Bible that God wrote called the Song of Solomon that is all about sex, and it is wild. You can read it if you want to. Um, but enough of, about that. Not what I want you to hear. Not all desire is bad desire. Not all passion and pleasure are bad but the kind that James is referring to here in our, our text today is this disordered desire of the flesh. That's what's at war, the flesh and the spirit. And if you're here at the end of chapter 3 uh, for James, we, you, this, some of this is going to sound familiar to you. We talked about the three enemies of the soul, the, the devil, the flesh, and the world. Um, and if you missed that, you can go listen to our podcast, but we're going to unpack a little bit today. In short, you have the devil who gives you deceptive lies that almost sound like truths. They're really subtle. They sound really good. It plays to your disordered desire as a broken, sinful human being, and all of that is normalized in a fallen world, in a fallen society that says, that's okay. Those things are okay to enjoy. But let's unpack uh, this idea of the flesh a little bit more. The world and the culture that we live in seemingly has one category for desire. That category falls under the idea of the authentic self right? You hear it in things like stay true to yourself, um, be true to yourself, do whatever is going to feel best, what, do whatever your heart wants, uh, do whatever is going to spark joy within you, like all those kind of warm, fuzzy things that we hear all the time. That's what it is. The authentic self is uh, the one category that we have. And because that's the case, then of course it's easy to believe things like if I don't get what I want, then I won't be happy, right? Because our culture has adopted the belief that the self is the one true authoritative voice in our lives. It is the sacred thing. It is God, right? And if you're in the pack with us um, on Wednesday nights, this is a lot of what Tyler Durham has been, been teaching on the past few weeks. Our culture at one point used to say that it was heresy to say something like deny God. 
but now it's taken a total 180. And if you say something like deny yourself, deny your pleasure, deny your passions, that's heresy. Total 180. So the world's singular category for desire is the authentic self. Scripture, on the other hand, has, has two categories for desire. Category number one is the flesh. I'll throw these up here for you. The flesh is disordered desire bent toward self-gratification and self-fulfillment. Again, the authentic self is one way to think about it, um, and it's all normalized in our fallen world. Category number two are the Spirit's desires, right? The Spirit of God who dwells within us. And the Spirit's desires are bent in the opposite direction. They are bent toward love, toward love of God and love of people outside of self, right? And so when James is referring to passions here or pleasures and the war that's at hand, he's referring to the flesh, the disordered desires bent toward self-gratification. Now look at what he says about giving into these disordered desires again, that are so easily normalized in our fallen world. Pick up with me in verse four. He says, you adulterous people. James, did you just scarlet letter me? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility, animosity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in you. So you see a war going on between the desires of the flesh, the desires of the spirit, and then here you see you're either a f you're on one side or the other. You're either a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. Um, friend of the world and an enemy, enemy with God, it's pretty harsh language. Um, when you think of that word friend, what do you typically think of? You think of someone who's gonna go get Chick-fil-A with you, right? You think of a pal, you think of a companion, a buddy, whatever, someone who's going to go on a run with you, um, someone you can go do things with. You know that a really good friend, though, goes much deeper than that. You know that a really good friend um, is, is faithful, is loyal. And when the word friend is used throughout all the New Testament, um, it's getting at the idea of loyalty. Um, like, think of, it's referred to in, in the Gospels a little bit, uh, this idea of being a friend of Caesar's, meaning you are loyal to Caesar. Your allegiance, your devotion, your fidelity is to Caesar, or it's to Jesus. A friend means you're serving or representing or you're being an ambassador for someone. So simply put, loyalty. Or another word, faithfulness. And adultery is the opposite of faithfulness, right? By definition, Adultery is unfaithfulness. And James is using this jaw-dropping language to highlight the gravity of the unfaithfulness of God's people towards him, who he made to be in a faithful, loving relationship with him for, forever. Friend means loyalty. We chose, um, and faithfulness, we chose unfaithfulness. And it says that God yearns jealously for, for us, for the spirit he made to dwell within us, which I think is beautiful language. He yearns jealously for us. He yearns to be in a relationship with us, and it pains him to see us choosing the world instead of choosing him. Choosing friendship with something else, choosing loyalty and faithfulness to something else other than him. It pains him when he's right there offering so much more and so much better than the world could ever give, and he longs for and desires for his spirit to dwell within us, which is what we get when we're in Christ. Think about this. I don't think we think about it that often. God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, if you are in Christ, 
his Holy Spirit makes its home inside of you. Do you realize how amazing that is? The Spirit of the living God lives inside of you. That is incredible. It is powerful. I just want you to chew on that reality for a second. If you're in Christ, you get the Spirit of the living God who makes his home in you. Let's keep moving on, though. Verse 12. Verse 12, I just want to highlight up here for you because it shows that there is only one lawgiver and one judge. That's God. And he's both able to save and he's able to destroy. So this war, again, it's between two enemies. Uh, the desires of the flesh, desires of the spirit. You're either on one side or the other. You're a friend of the world or you're a friend of God. And it's got one outcome. It's either going to end in defeat or it's going to end in victory. And what James is referring to, it's either going to end in the destruction of your soul, death, or the salvation of your soul, life, right? That's where this leads. God is all powerful. That's truth. He has the power to create. He has the power to destroy. And he also has the power to rescue people from death to life. And he proved it. He proved it by sending his son, Jesus, God in the flesh, to die on a cross and then come back to life and walk out of a grave three days later, showing that he's a victorious king having defeated the ultimate enemy of sin and death, right? And we can choose that Jesus said we have two choices. We can choose uh, in this war friendship with the world and lose our soul or friendship with God and save our soul. He says those are our choices. It's one or the other. It's pretty black and white, pretty binary. And I think he says it's because You've got you've to choose one. Ultimately, you're on one side or the other. And he tells us we have to make a choice of either lose our soul or save our soul to shock us into taking action one way or the other. Those are our choices. And then Paul, in the New Testament, one of Jesus' most passionate followers, uh, wrote a lot of the New Testament, said things like, if you cultivate and form your life around these disordered desires, around the flesh, then all that's going to do is those things are going to ultimately eat you alive. It's going to lead to your destruction. It's going to lead to an eternity separated from the God of the universe. Talk about a broken and fractured relationship. That's as broken as it gets. He says, if you form your life around those things, that's what you get. But he also says things like, if you form your life around the desires of the spirit, not designs, that should say desires, around the desires of the spirit, then you get life. You get life to the full. You get to drink from the river of delights and feast on God's abundance. That's what you get. Um, so how do we do that? How do we cultivate that kind of life? How do we form our lives around the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit? Look at verses 7 through 8. This is where James gets real practical and where I hope to get really practical with you guys too. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I think it's great. Resist the devil. He's going to run away. Draw near to God. He's only going to come closer. All right. You see two things here. You see submit to God and you see resist the devil. This is how we cultivate our life with Jesus. Here's what drawing near and submitting to God looks like. We're going to hopefully get really, really practical. I think first and foremost, it looks like getting into God's word, scripture, right? Which we're going to unpack here in more detail in just a little while. But it looks like getting in God's word. You, you've got it. You can't know God without being in his word. It also looks like prayer, right? 
You can't have a relationship with someone if you're not talking to them, if you're not communing with them, if you're not telling them, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what's like I'm struggling with. Here's what's going on in my life. Here's where I just don't trust you. Like, but also here's what I love about you. Like, you've got to have those kinds of conversations with somebody to develop a relationship with them. You've got to do the same thing with God. That's how you cultivate life with him in the de- um, and around the desires of the Spirit. Now, look at a third thing. Verses 8 through 10. He just got done saying, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And then he says this. He says, cleanse your, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The guy doesn't pull his punches. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, the sad kind, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That doesn't exactly sound like a pep talk, but it's good. And here's why. He's saying you've got to grieve over your sin. You've got to grieve over the things, those disordered desires that you are taking pride in, that you're taking joy in, that you think are fun, but are ultimately only leading to your own destruction. Again, it pains him to see you choosing something that you weren't designed for. It pains him to see you choosing death when he knows that you were made for life. You've got to grieve your sin. You've got to turn your laughter, your, your joy in those things to mourning of, oh my gosh, that is destroying me. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to turn to what's going to make me whole. I'm going to grieve this sin and I'm going to run towards God. It's this idea of, of repentance, really. You've got to grieve your sin. And then lastly, It looks like exactly what he says. Submitting to God looks like submitting to God. Surrendering to him, yielding to him is is one way to think of it. Um, Last week, Ben was preaching on the resurrection. um, And he was talking about this idea of yielding yielding to God. And the illustration he used, which I thought was so great, was this uh, idea of the game of -of tug-of-war. We're all familiar with tug-of-war, right? Um, Tug-of-war, you've got a rope. One person on that side, me, scrawny dude on the other. Um... And you're playing, and you're trying to, like, win over and and get the other person to essentially yield to you and get over the line. Yielding to God looks like saying, okay, I'm struggling, here I am, and then just letting go and giving in to him, of saying, God, I'm going to choose you. I surrender to you. You can win this battle. Your way is better. I'm, I'm letting you have all of me. That's what I want you to think of whenever you think of this idea of surrendering and yielding. Here's, um, here's how you resist the devil. Let's get really practical here. Really punk rock stuff. Y'all ready? Here's what that looks like. Same thing. Except I added the parentheses, just to be clear. You do the same exact things. You've got to cultivate the same exact things um, in your life. And here's why I think that's so important. And it's and why I think it's the same. Uh, studying this passage, and really the entire book of James, but specifically uh, this passage— James echoes a lot of Jesus, uh, his Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. Does it a lot. Um, that's where a lot of his teachings come from, and they, they sound very similar, but specifically this passage, a lot of it echoes the book of Matthew. And so if you're like, man, I don't understand what he's talking about, go read Matthew. Um, but I, w- I had to study Matthew quite a bit whenever looking at this passage and unpacking it and all that kind of stuff. And something that I couldn't help thinking about with this um, idea was r- of resisting the devil is in Matthew 4 when Jesus begins his ministry and is sent into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Just him alone and the devil. It's just the two of them. And the devil 
is speaking lie after lie after lie after lie over Jesus. And they are subtle, they're deceptive, they almost sound like truth, they sound so good, they sound so desirable, they're so attractive to the soul, they are so appealing to our flesh and its cravings, but what does Jesus do? If you're familiar with the story, um, you see that he resists, and if you're not familiar, I encourage you to go read it. Um, How does he do it, though? How does he resist? He turns his attention, he turns his mind. Again, remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Jesus turns his mind from that lie to a corresponding truth from Scripture. That's how he resists the devil. That's a lie. Here's what God's word has to say about it. Again, last, where we left off in James, we saw the idea of the enemy, the devil, being the father of lies, and he's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And those lies sound really good sometimes. Some of them really change how we operate and lead our lives. But you can't fight or resist his lies if you don't know truth. And you can't know truth if you're not in God's word. That's why it's important. And just to highlight how important I think it is, let's just call out some of the common lies I see all the time. And let's see what God's word has to actually say about them. First one is uh, two sisters in this room. First off, I love you. Um, Second off, here's a lie that I see all the time that creeps into your world. Your body shape, your body size, even your personality, those things are what determine your worth and your value. If you were just thinner, if you were just prettier or funnier or more outgoing, that's what would get you to be chosen by certain friends, by a boy. Those things determine your worth and your value. Here's the truth. The God of the universe says no. You were created in my image. That's Genesis. He says you were beautifully and wonderfully made. That's Psalm 139. He says that's where your worth and your value come from. And you were not only just chosen by me, but I died on a cross for you. That's how great my love is for you. That's how precious and valuable you are in my eyes. Fellas, this is the lie. Your work ethic, how many zeros that push to the right of the paycheck you get one day, those things are what determines your worth. How outgoing you are, how much knowledge you have, all of those things are what are going to earn you and gain respect from others. Right? And if you lack in any of those areas, then you'll never measure up. You're always going to be laughed at, or at worst, you're going to be a disappointment. Here's the truth. You have a heavenly Father who sees you and loves you. Matthew 3, verse 17, the Father speaks this over Jesus. He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And if you are in Christ, he speaks the same thing over you. You're my Son, I love you, and I'm proud of you. This is for everyone. Maybe you just recently decided to commit to Jesus. Maybe you finally got to a place where you said, Jesus, I am all in. I'm yours. I'm going to choose you. Your way is better. I'm surrendering to you. I'm never going to look back. Maybe you even got baptized. I don't don't know. But since then, maybe it was last night. Maybe it was last weekend. Maybe it was somewhere along the way since you made that choice, you find yourself doing that very thing that you swore you would never do. And here's the lie that you're hearing. Oh, you're a fraud. 
Oh, man, the God of the universe is losing patience with you. His love for you is diminishing because you already betrayed him already with that thing again? Are you kidding me? Romans 8.1, the truth, says if you were in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And that chapter ends with nothing can separate you from his love. No amount of guilt, no amount of shame, nothing you do, nothing that's been done to you, all that stuff. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation for it. Nothing can separate you from his love. Does he hate the sin? Absolutely. He sees it's destroying you, but nothing, he doesn't love you any less. Or maybe you're in here and you don't really believe that Jesus died on a cross for you. Maybe you don't believe that for one of two reasons. Maybe you think you're too far gone, you're ruined. Or maybe you just think there's simply no way. There's billions of people in the world, and you're telling me the God of the universe knows me? No way he knows me. To the one who feels ruined, we see in Scripture, in in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, say you are a new creation. If you are in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. You've been made new. You've been redeemed. You've been restored. You've been bought at a price. There's no such thing as too far gone for the God of the universe. If you think he doesn't know you personally at all, We see, again, to go back to Psalm 139, he knew you before you were intricately woven in your mother's womb. That's how well he knows you. We see other scripture that says he knows every single hair on your head. That's how well he knows you. Or maybe the lie that you're believing is, this one hits close to home. I'm never going to be healed of this anxiety. I'm never not going to be an angry person. I'm never not going to be addicted to this thing. Hope is lost. I'm never not going to fill in the blank. Here's the truth. Our God is a God of hope. Our God is a God of restoration. And we see story after story after story in Scripture of him healing people who others thought were beyond healing, that were unhealable. We see story after story after story of him sharing meals with people that others thought could never be loved. We see him talking about his kingdom that he's ushering in that is marked by everlasting peace and indestructible joy. That's what he preaches. That's who he is. Then at the end of his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus is in the garden, in a garden, um, and he knows what he's about to do. He knows he's about to go to this cross. He's about to be beaten, spat on. He's about to be whipped. He's about to be beat beyond belief. They put a thorn, uh, a, crown, a crown of thorns on his head. Um, he's going to be on a cross where there's nails in his arms and in his legs. He can't even breathe. He knows that's all coming, and he's in this garden begging the Father, is there any other way? Is there any other way that you and I, the, that God, can restore this broken, fractured relationship with our people who've been unfaithful to us? Is there any other way And then in the end, he says, nope, it's not about me. God, your will be done. Father, your will be done, not mine. And then he goes to the cross and dies in our place to restore our broken and fractured relationship. That's who he is. My hope and my prayer is that we would choose him and we would look like him. At this point, I would typically pray. We get back in to worship and then we're on with our evenings. Um, I want to do something just slightly, slightly different. Um, I just got done telling you about ways how to draw near to God, how to resist the devil. Um, and typically, those kinds of things, you're like, yeah, that sounds really good. You get fired up, right? And maybe you're fired up until you go to bed, and then tomorrow morning you wake up and you're thinking about the test you've got on Thursday morning, right? 
and you kind of forget about everything. So here now, I'm going to give you space to just practice at least one of these things. One of the things was prayer, right? Um, and prayer, maybe it's something you do every day, all the time. Maybe it's something that you haven't done in years or you've never done. Regardless, we're going to have time to do it. And don't overthink it. Don't be overwhelmed. I'm going to guide you through prayer. But I want this time to just be time where you get to do business with the Lord. Just simply sit with him. Um, if you're a journal owner, you can bring out your journal. Uh, otherwise, you can just sit there. Um, the band's going to come up and play. Uh, so if you would just bow your head with me. Father, we love you. Uh, we thank you that you are a God of truth. You're a God of hope. You're a God of restoration. Um, and Father, that you reveal your truth to us. The first thing I, I want to encourage you all to think through, uh, kind of picking up where we left off, left off, is what are the lies in your life that you're believing? Maybe it's some of the ones that we mentioned. Maybe it's that your worth and value is found in certain places. Maybe it's that you're too far gone. Maybe it's that, I don't know what it is, but what are the lies that you're believing? Spend some time thinking on those. then I just want you to think through how are these lies potentially affecting your relationships with people in your life? Are your relationships broken? Are there broken relationships in your life? Are there fractured relationships in your life? And then if so, what step do you need to make to restore that relationship? Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there something that you need to ask forgiveness for? then I want you to think through, how's your relationship with God? Is that relationship fractured? Is that relationship broken? And do you believe that Jesus died on a cross for you. That he died on a cross, walked out of the grave for you to bridge that relational gap between you and the God of the universe and restore you to a right relationship with him. Do you believe that? And then what step do you need to make to restore that relationship? Maybe it's for the first time of saying, yep, Jesus, I'm yours, I believe. Or maybe it's for the hundredth time turning back to Jesus again.
And then I want you to just end just like Jesus, who uh, resisting the devil, resisting lies, turned his mind, fixed his eyes on truth. I want you to end on just thinking of what truth do you need to fix your mind on? What truth do you need to turn your attention to? Maybe it's something already mentioned. Maybe it's that it's you're beautifully and wonderfully made. Maybe it's the simple fact that the God of the universe, if you're in Christ, calls you his beloved. Maybe it's the truth that there's not too far gone. The Father looks on you and is ready to welcome you with an opening, open arms and a welcoming embrace, ready to just hug you. Welcome back home. Maybe it's something different. But would we not walk out of here unchanged? Would we not walk out of here without fixing our minds and turning our attention to truth? Father, I pray that you would just continue to reveal your truth to each of us. Father, would your spirit do a work that only you can do in our hearts from the inside out? Would you change us with your truth? Would we experience who you are and your character and and what you have to say about us? That you love us right where we're at, that you have something so much better for us than this world could ever offer, that your truth is so much more valuable and so so much more of a firm foundation to set and build our lives on than anything else Father, would you change us from the inside out? And would we not walk out of here, out of these garage doors, unchanged? Would this week not look the same as past weeks, but would we be changed by your truth? Father, help us surrender. Help us give up the battle of -of tug-of-war. Help us yield to you. Help us resist the enemy. Guard us from his lies. Protect us from that. um, And lead us into your love, your truth, and your forgiveness. Father, we love you. We need you. We trust you. It's your name that we pray. Amen.